Hello and welcome to another installment of the Evolution Exchange Gaming Podcast, where we connect industry leaders to discuss experiences, challenges and successes in the gaming industry. I'm Adam, your host for today, and I'm joined with Casey O'Casey, Kit Eckloff, Jerome Altman and Daniela Fontes to discuss live service and keeping the balance. Hi everyone, this is Chris Bennett here, and Nordic's Managing Director here at Evolution. We're committed to doing recruitment in a different way that adds value to both our clients and candidates by providing you with amazing speakers and leading edge discussions on what's going on in the tech scene at the moment. There are three reasons why you should contact me. If you would like to speak on a future podcast, if you are interested in hiring awesome tech data product or gaming freelancers for your business, or if you are looking for an exciting new organization to work with, please get in touch. Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope to hear from you soon. Please enjoy the rest of the podcast. Now, before we jump into the topic, let's work our way around the room with some introductions of who you are and what you do. So, uh, Casey, do you want to kick us off? Oh, wow. Thank you, Adam. Uh, it's a pleasure to be back, uh, back in the podcast with the uh, best well-dressed person in the industry, Adam. It's a pleasure. Uh, until very recently, I was the license director at Arrowhead, so I recently left, and, and now I'm consulting with um, my, my consultancy service at ashesanddiamonds.com. Awesome. Uh, Kip? Yes, hello, my name is uh, Kip Eklov, and uh, I am a producer at DICE. I started my career as a designer on Battlefield Heroes, and I was working today to get it with Casey, <laughs> as we talked about uh, before we kicked this off. Um, that was good times and learned a lot about live service back then. And today I am, well, I've been recently working with uh, multiplayer levels on Battlefield 2042 and just about to transition into a new uh, role and team at DICE. Awesome. Uh, Jerome? Hey. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm Jerome, Jerome Ortman. I'm the uh, Marketing Communications Director at Fetchark. Um, recently launched Dark Tide. Um, we have Vermintide out as well, one and two. Uh, my main focus is sort of on, on um, PR influences, social media, community is a large part. Um, a little bit of everything and also tying into uh, life service, um, you know, everything we do on that front. So that's that's sort of the gist of it. Yeah, nice. And finally, but not least, Daniela. Hi, thanks, Adam. Um, my name is Daniela Fontes, and I'm a product manager uh, with a focus on uh, live ops at Star Stable Entertainment. Uh, I'm currently working on an an unknown title, um, and previously I have been uh, working for some years as a data analyst. Um, both at Star Stable and at Rovio, and I also run my own studio for four years in virtual reality. Awesome. We've got a really good uh, range of different uh, backgrounds uh, for this podcast, so I'm excited to hear your insight. Uh, and as always, always you've brought some uh, questions and points for discussion uh, around uh, live service and keeping the balance and what that kind of means. Uh, so let's work our way around the room with uh, expose them and uh, hear everyone's take. So let's uh, kick it off with Casey. Thank you, Adam, for putting me on the spot constantly. Um, so yeah, I, I recently was at ESG uh, East Sweden Games uh, with my friend Thomas. Um, shout out to that guy. Uh, they run an incubator, and I I did a, a talk over there. And part of the talk was um, about uh, the trend or the the recent news of mini games, you know, 
um, shutting down. We got Rumble versus uh, or Rumbleverse, Multiverses, Marvels, Avengers, Knockout City, Crossfire, and the and the list goes on. And I think um, what's interesting here is trying to understand why is this happening. Um, I have some some ideas about that, but I think uh, I would love to hear from the rest of the the, the people here. Um, but I wonder if it's a fatigued question or if it's a saturated market or if it's related to copy pasta ideas art business models there's a lot of things here um so yeah that's my 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 question i'll let it out the floor. i just start <laughs> <laughs> can of worms so i mean i was always th- i was thinking about this as well uh, a little bit uh similar topic uh and uh, something that i thought about that i wanted to ask like back to you also casey like what is actually making players come back and has that changed since 10 years ago when when you me sort of started working on free-to-play games and live server with battlefield heroes i wonder if that's has it changed over time what makes people come back and could that be a reason you know uh kid what's interesting today versus 10 years ago um, I feel like when we, or maybe that was even longer than 10 years ago, but when we were working together, that was kind of like the starting point of Netflix. And um, I don't want to claim that, you know, other media are taking the attention away from the games that we're making. But if you think about it, the amount of games that are coming out today versus, you know, 10 years ago or 12 years ago, it's a huge leap. Like the democratization of, of games has increased and, and and it's so much easier today to publish your game versus, you know, 10, 12 years ago. So I wonder if it's about also the amount of options that uh, people have available to them. Because if, if they if they feel like the developers don't care or they're not um, uh, giving them what they want as players, they'll just jump onto the next thing. Do, do you think that has anything to do with it, maybe? I think that... Uh... All the points both you, Casey, and Kid have mentioned uh, play into it, right? I think I recently thought about it. I was listening to a podcast, the Virtual Economy podcast, uh, Michael Footer and Amanda Farrow, and they called it the Great Gassacre because uh, games are the service. <laughs> and that, was, that was a really good one. Um, and you know, basically listing out the same titles. Um, I was talking a little bit about, about the, the both the paradox of choice fatigue that comes with it um you know so many options at your disposal and also different age groups like 10 years ago a lot of the stuff was new and um you know especially if you were a hardcore gamer and you're sort of mid-20s you know maybe this was this was new this felt fresh this was your thing and now we have the the generation of of you know people that have much shorter attention spans which we see in both you know from a marketing standpoint when you run ads and so forth like what captures people's attention um, but you also see it in games. And I think um, to the point that, uh, you know, listing out these titles that we mentioned briefly, I on paper, I think most of these titles are objectively good games. I've played some of them. I, I really thought Rumble Rumbleverse was quite fresh, uh, felt nice to play. And I, I thought it was also a, an interesting take on the, the Battle Royale formula, more kids friendly. Um, but sadly, they all failed to hit the numbers that those, you know, publishers were after. Studios were after um, when it comes to like retention, um, also you know keeping players engaged long term, because it's not cheap to run to run a successful live service, um, and and sometimes a good game, objectively speaking, isn't isn't enough. So I think uh, my my key 
thought behind this is to just you know also like question the the long-term validity of the business model and i think we will talk about that a bit later but there are a lot of macroeconomic factors right now um maybe it's the overall appetite for games as a service that has just you know you know been saturated a little bit um i think you know from a community standpoint when we look at sentiment and these kind of things um uh, and when you look on, you know, social media, Twitter, whatever, I think most live services that are out there trying to actively engage players, they also face a certain amount of backlash, it feels like, especially across social media, which is why I'm getting a bit tired of it. It has started to feel more polarized, you know, and more negative, and it's a bit harder to break through and just lead with positivity when it comes to your own games. Did you, did you see what happened with uh, the Rock City game? What is it called again? Um, the hero game? Um, or the anti-hero game. The same people who made Batman Arkham. Um, oh, Squad. Yes, Suicide Squad. Um, there was a backlash on that thing, right? Uh, and I I feel like making a game, it, there has to be some soul. And I'm sure those people, you know, obviously they had a lot of soul in their in their Arkham series. But when you look at, like, what they're trying to do with, the, with, with, with Suicide Squad, it's the exact same thing that everybody else is doing in terms of, you know, your cosmetics and your battle passes and all these things and i wonder if this has taken away the focus from building a good game and just like you know being happy with that and, and the perfect example of 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 uh, a game that i usually bring up is uh, elden ring and uh from software because when i look at elden ring elden ring could have easily had easily could have made maybe double the amount of money um by just incorporating all these you know bullshit mechanics and 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 you know cosmetics and loot boxes and all that stuff but i wonder if it would have had the same success in terms of longevity of of the studio's uh, brand and success over time so we look at as an example like demon souls from 2009 sold 1 million copies to date obviously launched on ps3 much smaller install base and all that stuff now fast forward 2022 uh Edlin ring 20 million copies um not the same brand, different games, but I think the brand of From Software is speaking to itself as well. And and obviously they also managed to carve out an audience and, and carve out uh, a space that they own. Nobody can play in that space except From Software. Um, and I wonder if that has anything to do with... So we know their next game is probably going to be good as long as they stick to their guns and to the soul of, of what they... Uh, of, of the it's game. almost like a live service in the same terms as you could argue that FIFA is a live service by releasing a new game every year. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm, and and FIFA, as if from how I look at FIFA, I actually look at FIFA as a subscription service. I don't look at it as a as a a game, a box game that you buy every year. It's a subscription service that you pay six dollars for every single year. Um, and and I think uh, like back to back to Elden Ring. It's it is a live service game, and I think uh, it's very unfortunate. By the way, and I, I know I'm going on tangents. Adam is. <laughs> uh, it's very unfortunate that live service is getting a bad rep because of business models and not necessarily about the philosophy of how you drive a game. Yeah, I I I agree, but uh, but going back to Jerome's point, I think he has a really like good point when it comes to the business case and proving business case. And if you look at the macroeconomic um, trends, they have also made it prove a business case for a live services game a lot more difficult. Like with the new privacy um, trends, 
it has become a lot harder to um, find a target audience and user acquisition has gotten a lot more expensive. And a lot of these games that you've mentioned, Casey, they if, if we start profiling them, it seems like they're mid-core, they try to go for cross-play. So it seems like they they were they were setting themselves up for for success, but it seems that the the audience did not meet the the investment. I, I think you're you're all you're on to something there with um, uh, like you said you mentioned Netflix uh, like we're competing or live service games are competing with more live service products now than ten years ago. I I think that that and as you said also uh, there I think that that plays into it and thinking about the pe- the kids that has been growing up during that time, they are used to having much more options with a lot of different apps that are very, very similar in the way they're created, in the, the type of business models and engagement mechanics and, and, and all that. So I, I definitely think that there's a there's something in there that is that has made us maybe more used to uh, moving away from one to the next because there is something else available if you choose to do to make that move that wasn't really the case ten years ago, I guess. Um, and then also, I th- I'm wondering if also if if, pe- if some sometimes are you just trying too hard with some of these games that you have mentioned? Are they putting too many of these mechanics in their game so it becomes this game as you say it just looks like uh, a game you've already seen? Yeah. I think yeah, that's a that's a that's a fairly good point because uh, I, I think you know live service it's a loaded term um, and it can get very muddied. Um, to Casey's point about you know FIFA and and Call of Duty and even Elden Ring to a degree, you know the the user base they have with the amount of user generated content that comes out of it, plus the fact that they you know um, have maybe not Elden Ring so much, but the others um, incorporate a lot of uh, different ways to make money, right? So. Um, Call of Duty is interesting because it has the the free to play component as well as the boxed release every year, which is the one that I tend to play more than the the Warzone side of things. But even there, you feel like um, you know you pay a certain amount of dollars and you are bombarded with you know cosmetic options and all that good stuff and different weapons, different charms, different this, different that, different uh, labels that you can put on things, and it's you know just gotten. A bit much and i think when you use those games that are arguably very successful uh, making hundreds of millions of dollars right um and you're a smaller developer and you use those as a reference you probably set yourself up for failure from the get-go right because how could you at that scale produce content to keep people going you know with your like slightly smaller title like you need so many people i think call of duty is nine studios for example um that are involved in, in the production of the game. So it's it's a lot of different teams. Um, and I think we, we see a lot of titles that come maybe out as boxed games being influenced by free-to-play models and tr- experiment with battle passes and so forth and then, you know, maybe failing on that front. front. And you also see plenty of free-to-play titles that are so easy to pick up but also very easy to drop again, you know, similar to what, what, what you do said, Kit. So it's, it's gotten really tricky to... Um, to push through. I think um, from what I've seen in the past, uh, it comes down a lot to building a, a community of, of dedicated supporters that um, might be much, much smaller than, you know, the, the, the player base that these big titles have. Um, 
But if you scale accordingly and you set your uh, sort of production pipeline right, then you don't need to serve them with weekly updates and, you know, cosmetics on the 24 hour basis and all that stuff, because that's just not sustainable long term. There's one wants to jump in there, but not sure who. <laughs> uh, Danielle? Um, yeah, these, uh, I, I want to, maybe this is a little bit of a provocation, but uh, perhaps we're also moving into a, like a, a world where games themselves are being consolidated. So we have Epic uh, with Fortnite, where the focus right now seems to be a call for content creators to focus on the, the fun and the engagement and leave monetization um, for um, up to Epic. Same with Roblox. Can it be that the next trend to force at least a subset, a big subset of games and growing subset of games to not have to worry about live services because those will be taken care of by the publisher? Yeah, I think that you touched upon something that's related there, uh, uh, what Jerome said there, because I think if you look at one of the strongest ways of building a community, uh, which is very, very sticky, as you were saying, Jerome, there, uh, to actually keep a live service game going, that is uh, allowing for user-generated content. So if you can create that kind of mechanism and community around that, that, that is super powerful, of course. And I think that's why that is trending. Um, that you, uh, yeah, that that you're going after that as a as a way of building uh, a community around your game. I think what's interesting in uh, what Daniela is talking about is, um, you know, we I hate these you know terms that come and and maybe go like you know blockchain and all that stuff. And I hope I don't hope we don't hear more of that anytime soon. But um, an, an interesting term which is the metaverse. Um, you know, we, we talk about that a bit and, and, and some say, oh, it's, it's coming or whatever. I, I actually disagree. I think it's already here. And obviously to what Daniela is talking about, uh, Fortnite is the metaverse and you have Roblox, which is another metaverse. Grand Theft Auto is absolutely uh, a metaverse in its own. And then we have some companies like new companies like, uh, build a rocket boy who are trying to create a metaverse. Um, and I think what is happening is like, you know, when we look, if we go back one step and talk about the games that died, um, in my opinion, they're copy pasta across the board on a lot of things, from everything from the art style to the business model to the audience, everything. Um, because if I'm playing Unreal, uh, sorry, Unreal, if I'm if I'm playing uh, Fortnite or Roblox, well, why should I jump over to your game if if my game also has your game inside of it? So I feel like the future of of games, and this is maybe a small prediction here, which is these things will continue to exist. Your your Grand Theft Autos, your your Call of Duties, your Fortnites, etc. Um, and if you're going to be successful in in building a live service game or any game really, you have to be unique. You have to be unique and and like you know not look at anybody else and copy like you know the answers to the test, but like really be genuine about what you're creating and 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 that will you know set you apart. And, and when you're set apart, then you don't have to live in the metaverse anymore. You can live outside of the metaverse and it, you know back to Elder ring and from software they own or if we if we look at paradox as an example they own part of the market and they they occupy that space and, and they don't have to be you know beholden to anybody else's you know um tune so to say yeah, it's like this you know people uh, when you talk about sort of marketing terms like blue ocean whatever you know we'll find this like huge <laughs> space that we can just claim 
I think it's more like, you know, find some small islands to live on instead. They might just exist within, but um, it's sort of my personal hunch, right? But uh, I think too many studios out there are chasing sort of to be the next big thing when people have already kind of made that choice and maybe that process, maybe it will happen, right? Like I'm not saying it won't, but it might just be less forced um, than, than we think. I mean, a lot of companies try to just kind of like push this into existence right now. You mentioned KFC Builder Rocket Boy, the former Rockstar people as well there. There's so many other examples, you know, when you go to trade shows, we watch trailers, like, like it's it's certainly gotten a bit fuzzy there. But there's a case we made here looking at titles like Deep Rock Galactic or Dauntless as well. Um, which is a game few people talk about, but it's also fairly huge at the same time. Uh, World War Z even, you know, um, where it kind of goes to show that less can be more. Um, all these titles are arguably super successful with smaller communities. Um, they're just, you know, working more on being radically transparent with the community and, and, and have them sort of become part of the process. And I think uh, Epic is doing the same thing now with Fortnite, you know, especially from sort of a monetary standpoint, actually incentivizing creators in really smart and impressive ways. I, I feel like no other company could do this right now, right? But um, still going to be interesting to see what will happen there. So it's an interesting time. I just don't think that uh, it'll this change will happen overnight, right? I think we will still, to your point before, uh, all of you have said, like, um, see more sort of like smaller scale innovative things. We have to be more creative. We have to come up with fresh ideas, um, even though we might fail at first with them. Um, doesn't mean that it's not sort of a, a, a valuable uh, effort to to pursue those. I would love to hear everybody's take on this. My takeaway about uh, the current, like what makes a, li uh, a successful life service game uh, these days, in my opinion, what I've noticed is it's very small teams of, let's say, 10 to 20 people or even less who are starting extremely slow. Uh, they're fast and nimble, but they're very um agile and and you know very connected to their communities and they're building their games with their communities um very slowly and uh, examples of that could be you know valheim is a, is a perfect example or you know the hunt showdown and the list goes on that's kind of like my takeaway i feel like yeah, uh, i think oh god <laughs> i uh i i agree with your point i i think that over the past years, uh, live ops became a competitive advantage. But if everyone is also doing it, it's no longer a competitive advantage. So we have to go back to the basics and audience mastery. And live ops also started by listening to the audience and try to get in the game, get the features in the game that we want our audience uh, to experience and they want to experience. So it started out from a dialogue with community and it has to go back to its roots. Yeah, 100%. I know I'm hopping on this, but that's also because of my, my trade. It kind of uh, dictates that. But um, I, I read this uh, book by Rick Rubin, The Creative Act or something, I think it's called. It's fairly recent. And he talks about this pottery art in Japan called Insugi. You know, when a piece of porcelain breaks, they put it back together and just put like gold in there or something and make it prettier. And I actually thought this is really cool if you think about uh, games that are, you know, being made sort of hand in hand with the community because you can just release something and it's get getting trashed by the community. Um, but if you 
basically, you know, look at the data, but you also talk to people. Maybe you invite them to play tests and, you know, the game becomes better for it. And all of a sudden you have this kind of loyal crew of people that are really into your title and, you know, word of mouth spreads and it gets bigger and bigger. So what I'm also really interested in, in seeing and hearing more, and I, I feel like it has become more common that you hear more of these comeback stories, you know, games that have been out for two years. They have their big moment. Um, all of a sudden, you know, they get new media attention. I'm not going to name the game right now, but you know, <laughs> there are a few of those. Um, and I, I think that is sort of a worthy endeavor to also not not feel like you've... I mean, of course, commercial goals and, and pressures and headwinds and all that good stuff that an economist uh, might, might, might yell uh, out when it comes to um, financial success of your game. They play a role, but if you have the... And maybe that's why smaller teams are more successful. If you have the energy and the time to act swiftly and iterate and iterate and iterate with the community, you might be better off for it. Uh, for, oh, sorry. Also, I was going to jump into a point that <laughs> kind of make uh, you held nail on that. I think from like sort of a community point of view, like that is like the foundation of life service. Essentially, like you have to communicate with them. I think uh, those the, the people at Moyang have kind of mastered that craft over the last few years. Um, and essentially, you know, constantly getting feedback all the time. Sometimes bad, sometimes good. But that's kind of what you get with live service, essentially. Um, and the kind of I want to go into uh, during your question next, but uh, I haven't heard from Kit in a while, so I kind of want to get your thoughts <laughs> before we jump into. Yeah, question. well, you know what that that is why uh, it's so much fun to work on a live service game, uh, just because of what you just explained, uh, Jerome, because getting that instant feedback and working with the players to improve the game, that compared to building a game completely blind or, you know, you're, of course, you're doing your research and the UXR studies and all that, but when the game's actually live and you get these fast iterations and uh, fast feedback, close conversations. It's so much fun. Awesome. So I guess uh, we'll segue into uh, the Jerome's question next. It's it's a, it's a bit of a rhetoric one in a way, but you know, the, 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 the key question that comes also out of the, the first topic we discussed is whether the, the, the life service model is in crisis, right? But then it also comes down to defining what that is, I think. Because um, if we look at those games that have recently been, you know, either shut down or I think in the case of Multiverses was interesting because it went into, it was an early access and it said, okay, we're stopping now, we'll be back, which was interesting, um, considering that uh, there's a lot of people that already spent money on it and so forth. Um, so we'll see how that goes. But overall, I think um, it's a twofold question. Like, do we, do we correctly define these days what a life service means or is, or, and is the way it's mostly seen? Uh, maybe potentially problematic. Like, is the life service business model in, in crisis? I think the, there's a lot of people asking that question, uh, which uh, sort of makes it a crisis. <laughs> uh, but for the reasons that we said, like, there's so many people copying a specific a specific way of doing it right now. Um, it's hard to be unique as. As you pointed out, Casey, I mean, being unique is also uh, a, a way to become successful when there are so many that looks the same. Um, but yeah, that, that's tough, of course. Um, but I guess the Lysers model is in crisis because there are so... Everyone is doing... Or everyone, but a lot of people are doing the same thing. So if you're doing that, yeah, you are you're you don't have an advantage, as, as we were 
mentioning also before, because that maybe the live service model was an advantage 10 years ago, the way you did it, because there weren't a lot of people doing it, or you did it in maybe a slightly different way. But that's very hard right now, it seems like. I wonder if there's a misunderstanding about what life service is. Um, I usually, when I do presentations, I usually give examples of uh, Street Fighter 2 or Diablo, like these games that are like, you know, 30 years old or whatever, pre-internet or, you know, at the beginning of the internet. And for me, those are life service games. As long as a developer, you know, cares enough to um, update the games and provide more content and, you know, and keep the user base entertained. And I think there's here, and this is where the cross, what do you want to call it? Like the, the crossroad of bigwigs or execs who who look at the at, at games left and right and say, oh shit, okay, those people are making X amount of money. I need you to put this thing in your game, uh, which makes no sense at all, instead of building the game from the other way around, um, where, where the creatives uh, have a vision uh, of a feeling, of an emotion, of, of something they want to trigger with the player. And then you can look at like, okay, how are we going to make money on this and, and you know, uh, fit, fill, fill the, the, the red line, so to say. Um, but I feel like, you know, the philosophy of what is a life service game, and, and it, that's kind of like, you know, I feel like we're not touching on that enough. And when I, when I talk about Street Fighter, I'm saying, you know, back in the day, we didn't have the internet or we didn't have um, access to getting updates quickly. But what they did is like, you know, how many versions of Street Fighter 2 are there? There's like maybe 10, 20 versions. And even today, we're still playing that game. And, and getting re-releases uh, digitally, so to speak. So I, I wonder if, if like you know, there's this misunderstanding of of uh, of, of what a life service is, or a service, just the word service. Sorry, kid. I know uh, Kit wants to jump in there, but I just well have to say I love that point about uh, developers. Like as long as they care for the game, and I always see it on my uh, my Steam library, and I'll see like Left 4 Dead 2 has like a two megabyte update, and I'm like, they're still checking things all these years later. <laughs> Who's, who's going next? Is it me? <laughs> yeah, it's you. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not saying, I'm definitely not saying you're wrong. Um, but I want to, um, I want to, exp I want to explain my personal point of view on that, Casey. Um, like, if if you then, if you would argue that a game like FIFA, it would be a live service. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm not arguing against what you said that it's a, sort of a subscription model because. I agree with that. But I wouldn't call it a, a, a live service uh, in the way that I think of a live service. Because to me, uh, it requires like a continuation of progression. Uh, and like if, if you take FIFA as an example, you get reset to zero, basically, between every game. And also if you look at then Elden Ring and the previous titles in, in the range, it also like the progression in a specific game gets reset. but not in your like community or your fan <laughs> progression that stays right. So I mean, you remain loyal to a franchise, but yeah, I mean, the way I at least I think about live service games, it needs to sort of continue being reset somehow. Kit, are you just uh, did you just claim that FIFA is a roguelike? <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> I guess I did. The uh, one. But, um, yeah, just, uh, this, it's an interesting conversation because the definition of life service is probably very different. You know, when you look at mobile, when you look at, uh, and I'd be interested in, in hearing more about that as well. Uh, when you look at small studios, when you look in, at, at, at big studios, 
I was watching a, a GDC talk the other day from um, uh, Jordan Power, uh, who actually is sort of, you know, leading Dauntless. Um, and um, he had a definition of it, uh, which I kind of think is sort of a, a very democratic one in that sense. Um, he said, the live service game is a game that, to, that continuously serves players, new content to maximize both acquisition and revenue over time, right? So you already have the sort of like the business term in there and the service side of things, but it still feels like it's sort of missing the point in the players, well, the player perspective overall. And then the other thing that you just mentioned, Casey, about just call it service, right? Think um, it was a few jobs ago when I saw a live service uh, presentation at a, at a really, really big company um, where life was all caps, capitalized, and service wasn't. And I always thought about it, you know, maybe it should be the other way around. Maybe life should be small caps and service should be big caps, right? Uh, so I think that might mean foregoing, you know, some short-term profit and, you know, growing your user base to like millions of, of players. But instead, again, you know, focusing on keeping a smaller group of people engaged long-term. You know, something that a lot of these games are not looking at or paying attention to. Uh, I was at a Ben uh, Shipping game conference and uh, Sarah Bach, who was the um, head of Minecraft today, um, she had an interesting thing uh, when she was talking about, about Minecraft. And she said that they are really happy and okay if their players show up uh, once every six months. So twice a year, uh, Minecraft and you know, Microsoft, they're happy if the players return. And I think their, re their realization and the respect for their player base and understanding that, you know, you cannot have the mindset that I'm going to bring a person, you know, that, that mindset, we had that like 12 years ago. Like that was one of my KPIs or core goals of, of how do I make sure the players come back every single day. But I think it's unrealistic. And I think that maybe that point is something that people are not paying attention to or not understanding. Okay, what is the space that we're occupying? What is our job in relationship to our uh, customer? And how do we make sure they're happy over a long... Instead of looking at short term, like, hey, I need you to come back every single day. How can I make sure that you're having fun a couple days or weeks? Uh, if it's a per monthly basis or quarterly or whatever it is, but it has to be defined, not defined, but it has to be attached to your, your game has to be, you know, specific in what it wants to achieve. Um, and that's something maybe we're missing uh, or these, you know, companies or execs or whoever it is, who's, you know, making these calls, they're not understanding that part. Maybe, uh, Danielle looks like you wanted to jump in there. Yeah. Um, I totally agree with. Casey and I think a great example of that is Star Stable Online, which has been running for more than twelve years, and we very we we have developed a lot of like audience knowledge, and we don't try to get players to get back in the game every single day. We are aware that like we have a younger female demographic uh, and teenagers, and there's school, there's there's life. And we we know that the content will will be there for for them to keep on coming, and they also know that, and they come to expect that we are not going to pull too many too many things that cause pressure. And they give us that feedback when we also cross a line and might require them to log in more often. Like they 
it's it's a dialogue with the community. I think kind of relates to to Jerome's point a bit before about you know bombarding the audience with like daily offers every day, and especially if you know your audience as as you just mentioned, you know the you know the school if it's younger audience, then might not be able to log in every day even if they wanted to, right? So they're not even gonna they're missing out on content, you know. So that's a really good point. Yeah, it's not just not just the teenagers, you know. I'm I'm soon a dad of two. And I'm, you know, probably not the demographic anymore to be bombarded or be receptive to uh, a lot of that sort of live service newsletter update this that. Um, I still try to find time um, to to play games, but I also probably in my demographic I I'm you know churning out quite fast compared to the, the core audience of a live service game, whatever that you know means to each and every one of us. So uh, I guess uh, just before we move on, because I'm a little bit conscious of time, has anyone got any final points around uh, the live service model being in crisis or uh, evolving into something new? <laughs> no, no, all right, no worries. So I guess we'll uh, we'll jump into to Kit's question because I'm actually really uh, interested to, to know a bit more about free to play. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean this is derailing the conversation a little bit <laughs> into something uh, slightly different, but uh, maybe that, that that's okay. Uh, the question I had was. Um, so I, I've been thinking about this many times throughout the years, and that is in a free-to-play live service game, what is a reasonable amount of time or money that a player has to spend to get their hands on the one item in the game that they want most? And the, I guess the reason why I'm asking this is because I've seen games where I believe the game is asking for an unreasonable amount of time or money from players to invest to get their hands on that item i could name a load so now <laughs> as in one of you been thinking about this ever <laughs> all the time uh, especially the point i was just making about you know not having the time and when i realized you know i'm playing uh call of duty and the battle pass requires me to collect coins to unlock those new weapons that i would like to level up and i'm kind of calculating in my head how long is it going to take me and then you know i decide whether it's worth paying the price or worth just buying, um, you know, a weapon pack that has that weapon in it with a special skin. Um, so far, I have not spent the money, but I kind of feel like I'm slowly getting sucked into being forced to do that. But it's also interesting because the, I feel like with some of these games, I, I, I guess you can talk about mobile, PvE, PvP. Um, but there seems to be a tension between sort of sometimes the core game loop um, and the, the monetization you focused on. For example, if you... If you have paid cosmetics, but you also unlock cosmetics to play, then you kind of cannibalize almost on your own audience because like you want them to play and stay in the game, but here they could just go and buy and they might therefore not stay in the game as long. Or it's the other way around. You're not selling any cosmetics because they just play the game and are fine with unlocking whatever they unlock in there. So it starts to get kind of tricky and I think probably comes down to finding a balance there what what you're selling versus what you're offering in game and what you sort of allow or enable people to quote unquote grind for um in 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 a pv title it could just not be um cosmetics it could be power right because it doesn't really break the game or it's not pay to win or whatever and i kind of feel like that that might sometimes be the better route to take to kind of like do different things um, in terms of pricing or time spent, I, I really think it comes down to your core audience and how much time you think they have. So if it's like uh, younger teenagers, could be hard. 
um, if it's 18 to 35 year olds, which is kind of like the, the most popular demographic I keep hearing in video games, um, or it's, you know, uh, the older demographic with more money in their pockets, but less time. So it's kind of trying to, to figure out who you actually want to, to mostly target with your, with your game, or, you know, parents that pay for their kids, uh, cosmetics, um, that's also an option, I guess. Jerome, I, I like that you brought up uh, Call of Duty. You know, I would like to. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a big uh, Call of Duty player. Unfortunately, haven't been playing as much just because of time. But I'm very interested to know uh, or uh, ask you about your thoughts about Modern Warfare One, uh, 2019, and Modern Warfare Two, in relationship to how I felt like in the first one, the battle passes was shorter, or they were more attainable. And I was able to sink in the 40 hours, roughly-ish, maybe 60, maybe 40, somewhere in that range. And I, I, I was able to grab a couple of them, like complete uh, uh, the first maybe four seasons. But after that, I, I, I felt like I couldn't do it as much. And I'm, sh I'm not sure if it's me not having time or if it's the game actually increasing, you know, you know either increasing time or increasing the amount of items. Obviously, in, in the new one, there's so much more content. It's like you're making a point on the previous question or yeah, thing we discussed there like because if when you could complete it it retained you for every season right because you could complete it and then you stopped playing but then it came back so for you specifically as your dem your demographic or you then that previous model was a little bit better tuned to you right while here you're like oh, I don't have time to finish it oh, well, I'm not even gonna start the next one I've actually played two battle passes on, on both games so um and I, I actually do agree with that hunch you have, uh, because I had equally as little time, I feel, uh, with, with one kid jumping around and wanting attention. Um, they changed the, the way you complete it, right? It's kind of like a board game design. And so the first one um, with Modern Warfare 2 slash Warzone, I completed because I paid for the special edition of the game and I had 25 tier skips. Um, so I only had to go through whatever it is, 75 levels and so forth with the second one now um i didn't manage to complete it and i was fairly close so i was actually upset that i didn't manage it and then i was like am i actually gonna buy the next one i'm not sure because this was this was too much this was too hard um and actually not as a from a very subjective standpoint consumer friendly um didn't value my time as much because it just took too long and felt too unforgiving in that sense Whereas I also do like the model that Halo Infinite has, where you can go back and play old ones. However, I did complete the very first one way too fast because I was playing so much Halo. It was also when we were playing Halo during lunchtime, so kind of was easier to to rack up um, levels there. But then when I was done, I had about half a year between that and the, the, the next season. And that was also detrimental to me going back to the game. So it's kind of hard, and I think you know, in terms of finding that right balance, um, it's it's a pretty significant challenge, I think, these days. Do you think we're being left behind? I feel like uh, like to be motivated to continue to play, and even though you know I'm having fun with my buddies now and then, but I just can't help but feel like I'm being left behind. Like I'm kind of like not dedicated enough. <laughs> and left maybe behind. maybe to create another Call of Duty, like for for old people, old people Call of Duty. It's a slow pace. Alright, I'd buy that. <laughs> but it can always pay. Um, I mean, like, it's free to play. 
free to play like you have to optimize for for your the revenue that that you get because that's what pays for the light the studio and for the team to keep on working uh, on the game so it's it's a very delicate balance um but i think that over time most likely especially like the, the more dedicated players are going to be optimized to the point where they're going to end up spending and hopefully when that time comes they're going to look back and think about the good times that they had in the game prior to that moment and that justified that purchase i completely agree uh what's interesting you know uh daniela while you're talking i was thinking about uh, and this is maybe jerome will probably agree here if you've noticed the first maybe three four seasons of modern warfare one had a certain length and then as time uh, uh, past us, they started to increase the speed of the seasons. So the seasons got shorter and shorter. And they made more seasons, which is obviously you know attributed to maybe what uh, Danielle you're talking about, like your your audience is shrinking, and you're focused on like you know milking the the core audience maybe, not in a bad way. Like obviously uh, they still were doing amazing job in terms of like you know uh, gameplay and all that stuff. But that could be you know one of the attributes of. of the first season, by the way, for for Modern Warfare 2, that was a very long season. And I, I finished it, and I, I think I could have finished it much earlier. But I really took my time, didn't stress. I'm not sure if they continue to do that, Jerome. Do you, do you think they did? or? Uh, I don't know, but I think there's something to be said about, you know, cramming in like a final or two final shorter seasons. Because that's when, especially with their business model, that's when the new one is coming up. Plus, they might actually have an opportunity to discount a few times. They usually they usually take their time with discounting their titles, right? But then towards the end, it starts to happen, and you know people jump in and they get like that instant gratification of unlocking a lot of stuff. Whereas to people like us who can, you know, have played quite a few over the years, probably uh, it starts to feel a little bit, you know, almost predatory, quote unquote, because you can't take any of those items with you into the next game, basically. Uh, so it starts to feel a bit ridiculous at some point, you know, why, why we, why would we even spend money if we can't keep those items and why then to kids question, does it actually feel like it's worth, uh, grinding, unlocking that item or paying for that item? So I guess the, the, the answer to the question that you ask it, I mean, it's a hard, it's a hard one to sort of answer in a pointed way, but I feel like it just comes down to, uh, how your game is designed and who your audience is. Uh, and how long you intend also to support your project at the end of the day. I feel like with, with Activision, they they basically plan one year, one year, one year, one year. Um, then it's time to basically open the valve and make some more money and then rinse and repeat. They did, however, change a bit, right? Like the past uh, three years, I mean, with Modern Warfare 1, they added, um, you know, the, the World War II thing, the game, I think, and then the other game, I forgot which one that was. But they added two games to your kind of like library of you know Call of Duty launcher, and you could still play Warzone, and they incorporated all the items from these two games, right? Um, and that took like a three-year period, roughly, before they uh, did what you said, like about cutting you off and everything that you had and progression, and all that, just you know went to the trash bin. I wonder if they're gonna do it this time again, like after, or if it's gonna be more than three years. Maybe they they keep it for sixty. I don't know. Because they did move to a new engine, I believe, and a, like a new platform. Um, and they've invested so much resources and energy in so many things in Modern Warfare 2. You know, all the experiences, like everything from the co-op experiences to the, to the what's that 
the game mode called again, the one with the, like scavenging, which is also like a, they're yeah, trying the, to, the extraction. Exactly. They're they're, I mean they're they're not. I don't want to say they're all over the place, but they occupy so much width or breadth in their content, which is just crazy. And I wonder if like throwing that away is a waste. You know what I mean? I think also the players they start to kind of realize that it is. You know, maybe not so much for Call of Duty, but um, Destiny is a is another example where they start to, you know, they they vaulted content. Uh, and saying, you know, oh, maybe we'll release it later. But what does that mean, you know? And and how does that actually justify paying X amount of money for a game that you are never certain you completely own? Whereas, and in, in, I feel like that is also different in in mobile, right? Like you you sort of have what what you unlock and what you progress with. In many titles, you just it's perpetual. Like you 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 keep it. Uh, you build up a collection so to speak in many titles i i don't know about um star stable for example specifically but it feels uh like it's handled slightly different and also it feels like AAA, especially they they take a lot of pages out of mobile games book basically and get inspired by that and maybe that's why we see so many messy business models right now as well there's still a lot of experimentation going on and maybe that's also ties into why uh, many of these titles uh shut down because oh you know, this project didn't work out, but let's focus on something else again. I think uh, before we get on to Daniel's first question, I, I can't wait to touch upon like, a lot of things that everyone's been mentioning, really, um, you know, especially in the, in the case of free-to-play. Uh, so with your point, Jerome, about kind of cannibalizing, uh, really having this balance between uh, grinding for something, and as your point, Casey, you know, having just enough time, you complete it, you have that sense of achievement, moving on to the, the next point. Uh, so I guess I'll pose this to, to you, Kurt, since it's your question. Uh, do you think that's more of a, an element in free-to-play games, that you have to really focus on that balance between grinding and having the right, like, the time for a season? Yeah, I think so, because the monetization part is so important as well. So it's, and grinding monetization goes hand-in-hand hand today in live services most of the time. Uh, but it's it's equally important for uh Full price products as well, but uh, for a lot of full price models because they they try to follow the same as well. So it's not just free to play, I would say. Uh, but yeah, thanks very much for your answers. <laughs> Even though you give, didn't give me a specific number there on uh, with a dollar sign, <laughs> I wasn't uh, expecting that because that that would, as you said, it depends on what the what type of game it is and who's your audience. Yeah. I, I could give you a price uh, less than Halo Infinite charges. Shots <laughs> <laughs> fired. <laughs> I bring up Halo Infinite in every podcast. Uh, I love it, though. I still play it all the time. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, Daniel, I want to uh, kind of hear your question because yours is a bit uh, of a branch away from the uh, the other topics we've discussed. Um, yeah. So my question is a little bit more to do with uh, team health and keeping the sanity while um, running this roller coaster that can be. Um, games as a service and live games. Uh, in your opinion, like, do you want to share some best practices or tips that you might have picked up here and there for uh, running a live service team or a live service game? Yeah, I'll give you a thing that I um, have learned the past couple of years, which is um, teams that have a vision to do a certain specific game. So let's say a small team of, you know, 20 to 200 people who want to do like a Call of Duty style and they do not understand what it takes to be running a game on that level 
everything from what Jerome talked about in relationship to content generation, to backend services, you know, uh, server cost, all that stuff. And I think there is, uh, that's like one of the biggest takeaways for me is like teams need to understand what, where their lane is and stay in their lane, or at least have a plan on how to transition to another lane where they can execute on that level. And that's like the biggest, you know, learning for me, uh, like the past couple of years about not understanding what it actually takes to run a service on, on that level. Um, and that's why what we mentioned before about, you know, why I believe that small teams that start slow and, and, uh, expand or, um, extend over time. Uh, that's where I feel, uh, a lot of these games are becoming successful. And I think if, if they do it that way, that means that they're sl slowly scaling and they're slowly adapting and adding people in the right moment in the right place. Uh, otherwise, you know, they just hit a big, uh, you know, wall because they didn't understand where they should be. And, and they either scale too fast or didn't understand, you know, what type of roles they need to fill or what type of services they need to incorporate. Uh, that's kind of like my, my takeaway. I think, yeah, there's a lot to unpack here in terms of, you know, both the, the team health side and the product health side and overall, um, the success of a live service game. Right. And I'm, I'm, I'm just a marketing guy, but <laughs> I think marketing is a, is a, is a key key element of running a live service these days because community because you know we want media attention around certain beats and so forth um when i went i went, I went to oh, sorry go ahead no i was gonna say customer service Customer service as well yeah oftentimes overlooked right and you have to look after these people and and their state of mind and their health and uh, supply them with enough tools and you know maybe even look at ai and how that can support their work as well which is a really interesting topic too also unpack maybe another time but um i, I went to uh, a course uh, at burke's school of communication here in stockholm a while back and there was um, uh, a former brand creators uh, manager who worked for adidas and she talked about her work with uh, stella mccartney and other sort of brand collaborations none of that actually matters but she met she mentioned something really interesting in that uh, talk and she said uh, repetition is reputation and so I always really liked that because you can always, uh, you know, translate everything in how games are made, right? And so when you look at uh, live service games and the expectations that are out there and the comparisons that are being made to all kinds of titles, I think team health and product health comes down to finding your space and agreeing as a team beforehand, what is it that we can actually do and how can we service the community with a game that we want to, you know, run and manage for say three to five years or forever, you know, like look at games like Path of Exile or whatever, because um, they've succeeded doing that. It's, you know, um, and and finding that sort of like it's. I'm not saying you know it's boring to talk about templates or whatever, but find that sort of baseline of what you can do, because once you've established that, you'll have the ability to surprise people. You have the ability to run a surprise event, a win back moment, a re-engagement moment, whatever you want to call it. So, so, so try and build this process out and then also stick to it. Don't, don't let, you know, that hot new viral game derail you in that sense, like stick to your guns in that sense, stay in your lane, as you said, Casey, um, and work together, like have, um, basically, um, a, a group, call it a life service team, life service ops, whatever you want to call it, but have a group of. 
uh, experts from from all the different teams sort of have a seat at the table and be able to, you know, especially on the production side, actually speak to, is this possible? Is that possible? Uh, where do we see bottlenecks, problems, and so forth? But then manage to at least, you know, as firm as you can, commit to that process. And I think the other thing for team health is to actually, as toxic as it can be, work with and for the community. Because I think if you can onboard a community fairly early and start to build that up, then they will also alleviate a lot of that that pressure to market your game. If you do it right, you know, you have user-generated content, you have positive word, word of mouth, all that good stuff. But they can also help you inform, carry your game beyond, let's say, a two-year vision. You know, What's next? Hey, we want to know. And then you have a community that is still alive and can tell you all these things and you can kind of build it with them uh, for the long term. So I think team health, uh, product health, they're of course intertwined in a way and you want to make sure that the team is being looked after as well throughout that process so make it also humane uh don't 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 try to you know get too much out the door in too short uh time absolutely i think you gave a, a perfect sales pitch for uh, casey there with uh, get someone from live service as a consultant and <laughs> could see him out <laughs> in a way um, me, please. <laughs> um, but Kit, obviously you worked with dice for quite a while uh, as well what are some of the the best practices you've got for uh, yeah. live service yeah, do you remember, Casey, uh, we had an expression back on Battle for Heroes called the Daily Show, uh, which essentially means that if you're not putting out anything new to the player, someone else is. Uh, and uh, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not against what you said there, that you can, you can retain players on a weekly or a monthly basis, and that is probably also okay. But the, the essence in thinking about it as a daily show is that... Um, if you stop producing new content, if you start rotating content, you're gonna see a very quick drop in your KPIs. That is a that's a best practice <laughs> that anyone that gets into live service need to think about. And on the uh, employee side for sanity, <laughs> live service never ends. Well, what was well, sort of managing the team? I think uh, Kid brought up a really good keyword, which is KPIs. And unfortunately, you know, if you want to burn out your team, obviously your number one KPI is going to be like revenue or something like that. So how can you like how can you make sure that the health of the studio and the team and and you know uh, and motivation is intact uh, at the company? So that's why you need to actually strive for the correct KPIs, and it can't just be revenue. Oh, that's a, a fair point. <laughs> Can't argue with that. <laughs> I'm not in the industry. But no, brilliant. Uh, Daniel, what kind of your uh, thoughts for everyone's uh, thoughts there? I, I love the points that, that, that were made. I think the like team, uh, team health, uh, trying to understand like how much you can commit to and, um, and what's, what are your strengths and how to best play to them are very important to not overextend. Um, Kit made also an excellent point about uh, being very, very careful about uh, content uh, recycling and cycling content and trying to keep on surprising our audience, uh, which um, which also bring uh, brings like a very delicate balance because you have to keep on churning out new content, putting out new content, which is expensive to produce at the same time uh you uh, you want your team to to remain healthy keep on listening to players and keep on feeding 
data and input that we have back to the game scheme. And um, that makes it sometimes challenging to um, to present those business cases to upper management, other stakeholders, and get their um, get their support for uh, for keep on innovating. You know, um, I feel like uh, this is actually another learning uh, that I I would like to share with especially young young developers or, or small indie studios. Um, not to put yourself in a corner. So what I mean by that is um, if you are running at a certain speed and you're in that hamster wheel and you're constantly you know, putting out content at a certain speed, it's going to be difficult, if impossible, to throttle down because now you've built a, uh, you've built a relationship with your players based on that speed. And now you cannot maybe pivot as much as you'd like to or you cannot stop the hamster wheel. So my, my, and I think consistency is absolute key to any business, regardless if it's gaming or outside of gaming. But I feel like if you instead have a very open, honest dialogue with your players and you set the tone and you set the speed from, from the beginning on where you want to operate, there's nothing wrong with increasing the speed, uh, but but you cannot do that on the on the cost of you know of humans or on on, on uh, or people in the company. So I feel like if if you can just be set the speed from the beginning about where do you want to be and 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 be realistic about that, and then slowly increase it if you feel like that is a thing that you should do because not every single game needs to be like we, we talked about like you know if it's a Call of Duty or whatever or you know the Daily Show of, of Battlefield Heroes where content needs to be out every single day. Um, is that really what your audience wants? Back to what we talked about with, with Minecraft, they're happy with having people come in once or twice a year. Um, and maybe we should be happy in content at a certain you know level. There's always this thing about, I, I hate this about you know capitalism. Um, I love capitalism to a certain extent, but I feel like you know the curve always like have to go up. Like it's 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 just unrealistic. What if we could instead be you know, happy and content on being in a certain space and owning a certain space. And there's obviously nothing wrong with uh, chasing a higher target and a higher goal. Uh, but what if by doing so, you're also burning out your audience because now they're tired of the same, you know, stuff. That you're, I agree. You know, I agree. Yeah. You, you can set the pace and you can set the expectation. Uh, and, the, and that expectation is powerful as long as you like maintain that pace that you have agreed with, with your players. Absolutely. And w which takes me to the next keyword that I like to put out, which is process uh, internally. How how are you dealing with your pipelines? How are you dealing with with uh, you know putting out content? I think Jerome brought up a really good point about uh, earlier about having uh, uh, a type of council where people from different uh, different parts of the company or different uh, backgrounds can come together and discuss the pain points that they have, and you know highlight, hey, we can't put out X amount of content because QA doesn't have enough time or uh, we need help in the marketing department because, you know, we're getting, uh, we have a lot of issues resulting in people, you know, reporting them to, to customer service. So th there needs to be some type of respect. Um, and I feel like, you know, when we were working together and uh, me and Kit, I felt like there was a lot of respect from different groups. Now, obviously, you know, uh, you have to operate on a certain, you know, uh, level, uh, especially at, at EA and, and big corporations. But there was a level of respect where everybody from different, you know, if it was customer service or community management or or QA, 
they were all doing the stand-up together, all talking about their issues and, and sharing uh, where they need help and alleviating the pain. That the, the, Because it's at the end of the day, it's a team effort, right? And if you're not involving every part of your team, then you're, you're probably going to fail on, on some points. I think uh, I just want to jump on that as well, Casey. I'm so glad you mentioned uh, Minecraft today because it's one of my favorite games ever. Uh, but also, um, it, I think it wasn't so long ago, like a year or two ago, um, when they made an announcement about one of their updates coming up. Um, I think it was uh, Agnes Larson, like head of Java. She met, like, made a video post, like saying to the community, like, "Hey, we're getting a bit of burnout right now. We're going to postpone it, so you know we're protecting ourselves, so we can give you a better product." And I thought that was so out there. You know, that's not something we ever see in the industry. Uh, and it would be nice to see that because, you know, developers are people at the end of the day. Um, so, yeah, I thought I'd throw that in there. I think what helps with that is this notion, and it's still kind of because with the games industry, we're so secretive, you know, this idea of radical transparency um, and just talk about certain things. Even, I think, uh, that's a personal opinion, but even, even topics like monetization, it's sort of like, you know, if you could discuss with a community that you feel like, hey, you know, we, we need to keep this service running. We all want to, you know, keep the lights on. You want more content. What is it actually that you're after? And how much would you pay for it? And what would you pay for? And of course, these surveys happen sort of on the, the, the back end of somebody's inbox. You know, you send your customers like emails and hope you can't have to use like mechanics to trick players to spend money or feel like they get tricked because, you know, if you're doing it yeah. right, they should, be, they should be happy to invest their time and money in the game because they like it, right? Exactly. So, I mean, try to see, especially with gamers, you know, that are sort of actively involved in the product because they play it, they go through it, they, you know, use their hands as they, like, interact with what you've built. Uh, treat them as, as partners and then treat the process and everything as a marathon and not a sprint and manage expectations by regularly updating the community on how things are going, where you might actually have some issues, problems, um, causing a delay with some feature or something. Um, I think that sort of openness is still to this day. I mean, you see more of it, but it's still at large missing from the industry. Absolutely. Uh, has anyone got any final points uh, they want to kind of make before we conclude the podcast at all? No. I think all right. Cool. Awesome. <laughs> Also, it is. Yeah, I mean, it is fun, right? If you get it right, um, plenty of games out there that I love to go back to and play. Uh, I mentioned a few examples here. Can't wait for Diablo 4. You know, there's a lot of stuff on the horizon that is, you know, has live service all over it, and I'm excited about it. Um, it's still a very fun space to be in because so many things go wrong and so many things go right at the same time. I try to kind of like figure out and learn from it and yeah create the best service to your community that you can absolutely well uh, i guess we're just as a touch point to kind of round up everything i really loved all the points you were all made you know daniel your points about you know life service evolving and taking elements of uh, others and being uh, not what it used to be and you touched upon that as well casey as well as you know fifa uh, being sort of a subscription service if you will in games like that um jerome obviously your talks about the uh, the community as well which ties into kit you know aligning uh, with them being on the same page, not wanting to trick them, uh, and as well like the Daily Show, if you're not showing them something, someone else is. <laughs> so always strive to give content. Um, there's some really, really good points there. I feel like we could easily talk about this all day. Um, but for those of you listening in on the podcast at home, if you want to get involved with an upcoming episode, potentially around live service or anything else, 
then reach out to me on LinkedIn or by my very long email of adam.miller-betridge at evolution-nordics.com. See you next time.